0: We're in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as they were told. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Lord Jesus, we, we want to see you now high and lifted up. We want many, Lord, to come as RJ did. We want the power of your holy word to go out, penetrate hearts, lives, and souls, and draw them near to you now. Please be with our pastor, equip him, Strengthen him, give his voice, anointing by the Holy Spirit to do your holy work. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: We've been talking about doubt and looking at how we strengthen and assure ourselves at times of doubt. And today I'd like to deal with a huge question. Why is there suffering in the world? Do you ever wonder about that? Does that ever bother you? There's so many kinds of suffering too. Of course there's you know injustice and assaults mass shootings that we've been hearing about and then on top of that there's natural disasters earthquakes volcanoes floods then there's the things that afflict us like diseases and then death itself and the question is why does our good god our loving god allow these things to happen in our lives even never mind in the whole world I wonder if this bothers you I'd like to address this question, but before I do, here's three things I just want to say as a sort of a caveat. First, I'm not going to even pretend to answer all aspects of this problem, and there are many tentacles you might say to this problem. First of all, because there isn't enough time, but mostly because I don't have that much wisdom. Secondly, what I'm saying is in this series really addressed mostly to believers. So when I address this question, I aim to mostly address those who know that the world is not the way God made it, and who believe that, that sin and death entered into this world as a result of our sin, and that God's goal is to redeem the whole of creation. And then thirdly, I'm going to address the question of suffering in our lives by looking at the suffering in one life, the life of Jesus. So if you'll Turn with me to Luke's gospel. Actually, I'll be looking at several different passages, including this passage which talks about the Palm Sunday event that happened 2,000 years ago. So, why is there suffering? I mean, couldn't God, omnipotent and loving, find a better way to accomplish His goal? I'd like to ask three questions. Did Jesus ever ask this question, you think? And secondly, well, is there a better way? And thirdly, Where is the God of power and love when we are suffering? In fact, to answer that last question right away, let me say that what Christ offers is the very way to experience the power and love of God when we do suffer. I'm not sure how we can make it through suffering with hope and joy and anticipation of future glory apart from what Christ offers us. But let's start with the first question. Do you think Jesus ever asked this question? Why is there suffering? Why do I have to suffer? To get a glimpse of Jesus' thinking on Palm Sunday, I'd like to look at some other texts in the Gospels. So we know what happened in Palm Sunday. You've heard it now, read. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, people lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us. What do you think Jesus was thinking at that time? What do you suppose? We have a clue because on the way into Jerusalem, just a few miles from where he would be nailed to the cross, he turned to his disciples and told them what was going to happen. And if you're in Luke's gospel, you can turn back to Luke 18. Here's what he said, verse 31. Just approaching Jerusalem, says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Here's what I'm saying. He knew. Here's children, you know, singing and dancing around them. People are all happy. It's like a parade. The disciples themselves, it's clear from the accounts in the Gospels, weren't Aware of what was going to happen, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the excruciating suffering of bearing the sins of the world and the crucifixion itself lay ahead. It was absolutely clear to him on that day. But why? Why did he have to suffer? Why was that what lay ahead? I think theologically we immediately give the answer that an atoning sacrifice was necessary. In fact, the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament say that that's necessary. All of the law pointed to that being necessary. But isn't there another way to redeem humanity, to redeem us from sin and death? Jesus, on the other hand, was convinced that this had to be. This had to happen like this. In Luke's gospel, chapter 9, here's what it says in verse 22. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Luke 9, he says, The Son of Man must, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That word is in there very purposefully. He must, it means it's necessary. It will happen. It must happen. But is there a way besides suffering? Jesus actually asked the question that we wonder about. Isn't there a way for God to redeem us apart from suffering? Jesus asked that question that we ask when we're looking at the road ahead, particularly when we see great suffering ahead of us. Isn't there a better way, Lord? Surely you know. So at the end of the week, he asked that question when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is Sunday. At the end of the week, just before the crucifixion, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just hours away from trial and torture and crucifixion. And I want you to hear how the gospel of Mark records what his prayer was. This is Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father. He begins this prayer in a very intimate way. He knows the love of God in his life. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Just note that. All things are possible for you. you Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, cup in the Bible refers to an experience. Just as, you know, when you drink something out of a cup, you experience what's inside the cup. You know, it could be something sweet. It could be something sour. It could be something bitter. So here, it refers to the experience that awaits him. Really, it's the experience of crucifixion, bearing the sins of the world. And his prayer to the omnipotent God who loves him is, remove this cup from me. And the Father in heaven, he says, who loves him, Abba Father, all things are possible. Why? Because he's omnipotent. Not only can he do all, but he has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He can certainly come up with a better way to rescue humanity from sin and death. Abba Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. See, that's our question. God loves us, our Father in heaven, and we believe he's omnipotent. In fact, that's the Basis for our prayers, also. That's why we ask him to rescue us and redeem us. Get us out of trouble because we know all things are possible, but can he redeem without suffering? And the only answer Jesus got was the sound of footsteps approaching in the dark. Read the Gospels. It says, immediately after he finished speaking, Judas appeared from the darkness with a cohort of soldiers to arrest Jesus and lead him ultimately to the cross. So that's the second question. Isn't there a better way? Surely the omnipotent God of love can accomplish our salvation if we focus on Jesus himself without the suffering of one who was absolutely sinless and innocent, free of any blame. So doubts and questions arise in us when we think about suffering. I mean, even if the world is fallen, even if there is all kinds of evil and suffering, isn't there a, well, a nice way to stop all this? Isn't there a nice way to stop those who create massacres? Nice way to stop those who rape and assault and tyrants who commit genocide? Isn't there a nice way to do all this? That's what Jesus was asking in the garden. Remove this cup, if possible. And the answer was, no, there's no other way. And of course, what troubles us is that we think, yeah, but God, with you, everything is possible. Jesus himself said that. Everything is possible. We always say that when we pray, when we express our faith in you to rescue us and deliver us. So why can't God think of a better way to redeem his creation? There has to be another way. And, and we long for a better way. Well, at least we long for a way that escapes, that doesn't end run around the suffering that seems to invade our life so often. So people make suggestions. Suggestions to God here, try this out, Lord. I don't know if you've heard these, but I've heard these and I've read these. Some people say, all right, God, sin entered into the world after Adam and Eve. Just wipe them out and start over. That's got to be easy enough. The problem is that the Bible says, and we read this earlier from Ephesians 1, that God knew you and loved you before the foundation of the world. So wiping out everyone after genesis 3 after sin entered into the world would mean wiping you out the possibility of someone he loved ever existing would be wiped out it'd be what parent would ever do that it'd be like saying i'm going to wipe out all my children that i love god would never destroy the children he loved so then people say okay fine then why not just remove the troublemakers you know remove the ones that are causing suffering and trouble okay but who do we remove Okay, I know we always start with Adolf Hitler. In our secular age where we don't believe in the supernatural, we don't believe in devils anymore, Adolf Hitler is the stand-in for the devil, isn't he? He's evil incarnate. So we destroy Adolf Hitler, we destroy all the tyrants that do things like him. We, We destroy all the serial killers, swindlers, conmen, slanderers, gossips who hurt us so much. We remove them where do we stop? Where do we stop? Don't we have to also destroy the people who sometimes explode in anger because don't they hurt a lot of people? And don't we have to destroy those whose harsh words, insensitive words cause others to suffer? I mean, that's a source of suffering in our lives also. And, and how about the young person who had a hard day at school and comes home and kicks the dog? Don't we have to destroy the young person? Or that child who gets a perverse pleasure from kicking over an anthill. Where does it stop? I think you get my point. Who would be left? Who would be left are the people God loves and cherishes and knew before the foundation of the world? The answer is no one. That's what the Bible says. No one would be left. Because all of us have caused pain and suffering. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us would have to go because every one of us is the cause of suffering for other people in some way. I think when we get that, when we start to understand that we're on the right track now to figuring out why God chose to do things the way he do it. Although, who can know the mind of God? But to stop suffering, we have to get rid of the cause. We have to get to the root of it. Just as to eliminate a disease, we have to get to the root cause of that disease. Think of a terrible disease like the bubonic plague, you know, the Black Death. When you think of the bubonic plague or the Black Death, we think of the Middle Ages. We think that's when it happened, and, you know, it was horrible. Hordes of people died in a terrible way. But did you know that there was an outbreak of the Black Death in 1920 in Galveston, Texas? Yeah, these rats came on shore from some ship from somewhere and these rats carried fleas, and the fleas carried the bacillus, which causes the black death. And these fleas bit the people of Galveston. The first was a 17-year-old who got the black death, the plague, and then others were bitten. For a long time, doctors had no idea what was going on. I mean, what doctor is going to think, oh, this is the black plague? It just didn't occur to them. Took them a while to figure out what was actually happening, and then they started to get to the root. Okay, we have to eliminate anything that's causing this disease. So we have to get rid of the fleas. Now, who's going to catch every flea? It's hard. So we have to get rid of the rats, they figured. And so they paid a bounty for people to get rats. And they were collecting 500 rats a day from rat catchers who was going around. And they actually kept track. The town hall had a fun time. They have the exact number of how many rats they caught. It was something like 49,000 plus rats. And the plague stopped when you get to the root and you eliminate the cause of the infection, that's when the plague stops. But what if we are the infection? I know that's a terrible thought. We don't want to think about it that way, but what if you and I, the ones who God loves with all his heart, the ones who he knew before the foundation of the world, what if we are the infection that's causing suffering in the world? It's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation groans because we've rejected God. You know, we've become bratty little gods that pretend that we have the power and the authority of God, and we reject God. We don't honor him. We don't do what he tells us to do and think we're not accountable to him. And it says in that chapter that we destroy creation. Creation itself groans because of us. We destroy other people, and we destroy ourselves. So what if we're the infection? Now, I know that's such a jarring thought that you would think at that point, non-Christians would just sort of, well, turn off the TV if you're watching a live stream or walk out of the church. That sounds so crazy. And yet, I'm just fascinated by how several people who have nothing to do with the scriptures or the gospel are seeing the harm that humanity causes. They're seeing that we are the infection. They're even using words like that. The founder of the Sierra Club, David Brower, thinks humans have no more worth than forests, and the evil is that we're destroying forests. He said, While the death of young men in war is unfortunate, it is no more serious than the torching of mountains and wilderness areas by humankind. We're creating problems. A Finnish writer, Linkola, thinks of human beings, he says, we're an evolutionary mistake, a cancer on the earth. You know, like a mutation may cause a cancer in our body, he says, that's what's happened. Humanity is a cancer on the earth. He says he has more sympathy for threatened insect species than for children dying of hunger in Africa. What the Bible says is recognized in some quarters by other people also. And I think if we look at our own lives, we would probably agree with it too. How can a God who loves you, who delights in you and in me, how can he deal with the infection if we are the infection? And the answer that Jesus got, the answer that Jesus willingly accepted, not my will but your will be done, was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, a pathway of great suffering that led to life, And redemption and a new world not wiping us out but healing us so then lastly where is the God of power and love when we're suffering what's going on couldn't God eliminate evil well at least without my suffering the answer for Jesus of course was no the the one who was absolutely innocent without any sin without ever rebelling against God the answer was no but it didn't mean that God was powerless and it didn't mean that God didn't love him. That's what critics say. You know? Critics say that the existence of suffering means that either God can't help us or that God won't help us because he doesn't love us. Either he's not omnipotent or he's not loving. But in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that God does love us and God is powerful, all-powerful. And that's true in our lives also. God comes to us with power and with love and yet allows his people to go through suffering for a particular end. So God is omnipotent in your life. You have to understand that even though you're suffering, even though you're crying out to God, Lord, if there's any way, let me escape this because I believe that all things are possible for you. That God is still omnipotent even though suffering comes into your life. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have the power to save you from pain and death. Jesus knew this. Even as he submitted his will to the Lord, he said, nothing is impossible with you. So Palm Sunday gives us a picture to keep in mind. If you're walking through a time of great trial and suffering in your life, think of God incarnate marching into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. People are singing his praises. People who he knew would soon abandon him. Some of them might even cry out, crucify him in a few days. Others would run away from him when he was arrested and in trouble. But what do you see? Well, as you look at Jesus marching in to the city of Jerusalem where he would be tried and crucified, you don't see him calling down angel armies to help him. You don't see him training his disciples to fight a pitched battle to save him. You don't even see him calling down fire from heaven the way his disciples suggested earlier in the Gospels. So what is this? Is this weakness? Is this God incarnate sort of helplessly walking in? Is he being tricked? Is he being fooled into going to a place where he's going to be arrested and killed? No. What we see is Jesus marching purposely to the cross. He knew what was coming. He went to Jerusalem and he knows exactly what lies ahead. He's not dragged there. He's not tricked there, but he's in charge. He's powerful. He's in control of all circumstances. In Acts, they prayed that way. They said, yeah, Pilate and the kings, they all gathered together. He says, Peter says, to do what you had ordained would happen. Here was God being omnipotent, doing exactly what was needed to save those whom he loved. God is powerful in your life. You know, even if you're suffering, even if you feel weak, you feel out of control and you wonder, where is God? God is doing exactly what has to be done to redeem you, to save you, to show you the full measure of his grace and love in your life. He's in control. He's omnipotent. Does God love me then? Because at those times when we're praying and we don't hear an answer, we wonder, does God care about me? Is God still loving But remember what Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, it's it's an intimate address. It was the address of one who knew that God loved him. We have to remember God's goal is not just to eradicate evil, suffering, and death, but it's to rescue, to save sinners like you and me. That's what he's doing. And in love, he goes about that job. So he's not there to destroy you. He's not there to destroy everything that causes harm or suffering because that would mean destroying us said, his job, his great loving purpose is to transform us, to make us his friends, to adopt us into his family, to call you his son and his daughter. Take rebels, as Romans chapter 6 puts it, take rebels and turn them into friends, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. Is there another way? Isn't there a better way? Don't we ask this always when we're suffering? I have to say, I honestly don't know of a better way. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his invitation to take up our cross and follow him. Now, some of you may be conjuring up better ways, and I wish you well. Go ahead, think those through. But I'll tell you what Jesus absolutely knew. In Gethsemane, he knew that there was no other way to accomplish God's loving purpose but the cross. And he willingly went there. The suffering of God incarnate was the only way. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. We're part of God's plan of redemption. Why do we suffer? I don't know the causes of each person's suffering. I don't even know the causes of the particular sufferings that I have to go through. But we know that it's part of God's redemptive purpose. God promised that there would be suffering in this world. May I read this passage? It's in the first letter of Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Here's what Peter writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, listen to this, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice? That sounds strange, isn't it? Not because we enjoy suffering. I don't think anybody does that because we trust the God of love and God's power and we know that he's at work even in the midst of our suffering. He hasn't forgotten us. He's accomplishing the redemption of all of creation and he's accomplishing the renewal of who we are. There's a purpose. This is what one sinner wrote. His name was Paul. He was a fellow sinner like us trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ just like we do. Here's what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a purpose, you see, he says. One day we'll see that things that seem meaningless, the pain and the trial that seem to have no purpose, had a glorious end. In fact, what's happening as we share the sufferings of Christ is the redemption of all of creation, and we're part of that process. And there's a glory that awaits us that we can't even imagine. I know we suffer, but don't ever think that God's love is not with you or that God's power, His omnipotent power is not with you. So in your suffering, don't ever lose heart. Don't think that God's power is limited so he's unable to help you so that you quit praying. And don't think that God doesn't care, that God does not love anymore. That God doesn't love you because God has never forgotten you. The same Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Here's verse 16 and 17. So he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, there is suffering. There's kind of a decay in all around us. There's challenge and trial. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Redemption is taking place. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're part of the solution. Even when we're suffering, we're part of God's grand solution. There's an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Yeah, so we all suffer. And some of you I know are suffering in grievous ways. But don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. Don't lose heart, friends. Keep your eyes on the Savior. Imagine that you're there watching him march in to the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, knowing full well that what awaits him is the cross. And what do you see when you look on his face? Think about that as you're suffering. Yeah, you see him thinking about the resurrection Because he's prophesied that it'll happen. But before the resurrection comes the torture. Before the resurrection comes the crucifixion and the grave. And he knows all that is coming. But focus what you see on his face. What do you see on the face of Jesus as he's marching in to face all of that? Do you see creases of worry on his forehead? Do you see him losing control? Do you see him defeated? Do you see him... Wondering why he ever came here? Why did I ever take that path to Jerusalem? No. But you see, as someone full of love for you and me, and you see someone absolutely in control, even as he marches into the teeth of death, crucifixion, the cross, you see someone absolutely in control as he rescues us, as he redeems us. And he's absolutely in control in your life. So he marches forward accomplishing God's good purposes for all of humanity and in your life. And so I say, follow him, follow him where he leads, follow him looking at his face full of victory and confidence, full of love and power. Follow him, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we want that vision in front of us because when suffering and trial floods into our lives, It obscures your face from us. We start to think of, Lord, really our face, which is often full of worry and trouble. But Lord Jesus, show us your face. Make it powerful, clear, sovereign, omnipotent, all-wise God, loving, compassionate. Show us your face where all those things are shining in glory from your face so that we can have confidence as we walk through the trials of life. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Troubles will come in life. The, the songwriter said, Sometimes on the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes in the valley in darkest of night, God leads his dear children along. Troubles will come. I was thinking of a little guy who was walking with his dad and a ferocious dog started barking at them. and He started crying and the dad picked him up and the, the little boy buried his face in his dad's shoulder, and dad put his arms around him and carried him for a little bit until they were past the trouble, and then everything was well. And that's my benediction for you. May you keep your face buried in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is omnipotent and who loves you till your troubles pass. Amen.